Knock High. Hello, welcome to Knock Knock High with the Glockenfleckens. I got uh, the one and only Kristen Flannery, also known as Lady Glockenflecken here. And then there's you. And me. You got, you, you know, you know. Will Flannery, Dr. Glockenflecken Dr. himself. Dr. Dr. G, Dr. Glockenflocken. I've also gotten Dr. Glockenspiel that once. That one's my favorite. Uh, Dr. Glaucoma Flecken. I, you know, it's it's really endless. It's your own fault for choosing the, the word. Yeah, could have done something a little easier. Anyway, um, we got a, a fascinating show today. Yes, very, very interesting. Conversation with Dr. K. Jameson. Uh, but before we get to Dr. Jameson, uh, what's going on with us? I just got back. You got to uh, solo parent mm-hmm, for a for couple days. For the weekend. Yep. Yep, uh, yep, yep. While that was, I was uh, fun. Yep. Mm-hmm. While I was off uh, at a neurosurgery conference. Mm-hmm. My first neurosurgery conference. You know, you you have the hair for it right now. That's neurology. I know, but it's close enough. It's it's they're brothers. So here's the deal. My, they have the same hair. I am way overdue for a haircut, everybody. But my my and this is a little extra of me, but I, I'm very attached to my hair person. <laughs> well, as we all are, when you find a good one for you, right. you stick with it. I've never had a bad haircut from her, and she is on maternity leave. Yeah. And so um I've already asked her to just, you know, leave the baby or bring the baby with her. <laughs> Leave the baby. <laughs> Don't leave the baby. Bring <laughs> the baby. Abandon your child. I I will will do. I will hold the baby. While oh, you would love that. You always I have do. baby fever. I, you I love, love a good baby. I love a good baby. <laughs> <laughs> um. So anyway, I am. Uh, why are we even talking about? Oh, I'm just. I'm due for a haircut. Yeah. And uh, I do have neurologist hair, but this was not neurology. This was. I understand the difference, but they have very similar hair. Your two characters. And in my videos, they are brothers. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, they could all be related to each other. Maybe but... they are. No, no, that's too much. You don't know. I think I do know. Not I'm even creating you. this universe no, myself. No, all of the okay? world building in this place. I, I, it's all up in my head. I got it. It's there. But anyway, uh, I was in L.A. Uh, staying right next to the crypto center where there were like playoff games going on, which is kind of cool. Hmm. But did you see anybody in the games? I, I did. I saw in my in the elevator. Uh, there was somebody. Oh, is the elevator? Is in the elevator? There was a member of the Memphis Grizzlies. Hmm. Who was uh, on the elevator with me? So, yeah. and did you know that I did ahead not, of time? No. Well, he got on. I didn't get a good look at him. All, all I knew is very tall. Right. That's what Extremely would have tall. given it away. But it was a, a great conference. It, I, you know, it's fun going to these different conferences because I get a a, a little sense, a much better sense of what people are like, mm-hmm. what these specialists are like out in the wild. In the wild, uh, one recurring theme though is that you know th- there there are certain specialties that you've, you have this perception of them as being kind of angry mm-hmm. and mean so like cardiologists i'm always talking about that mm-hmm. uh neurosurgeons just surgeons in general mm-hmm. but across the board whenever i go to a conference and i hang out with these people at a conference everyone is so happy it's almost <laughs> like being in the hospital makes you miserable oh imagine that it's amazing yeah. everyone is so happy to just be socializing socializing not thinking about work uh maybe having a few beverages some good meals even going to sleep at night even nurse who i just assumed like would it it would take 
uh, just a, some kind of Herculean effort to get any neurosurgeon away from the operating room mm. into a conference. But there were it was a good turnout, and it was a great, great uh, experience. Did any of them have like you know those baby monitor like nanny cam things where you can watch your baby sleeping? Did any of them have those set up for their operating rooms while they were gone? So they could yeah, absolutely. Keep an actually, eye on yes, it? to make sure that general surgeons didn't take mm. their operating time. Yeah. yeah, no, they didn't do that. But I did kind of expect there to be like. Uh, in the exhibit hall, there to be like an emotional support operating room for mm. people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they could just go to just, just feel in case. comfortable, right? Yeah, you know, at some some conferences they have little, like puppies you can play yeah, with. Yeah, uh, sensory chamber, like exactly, just like a yeah, little yeah. operating room, like a fully functioning operating. Room. You just put on some scrubs and mm-hmm. go sit there and pretend to be in your happy place. Yeah, I don't know. but no, nope, they did not have well, that. Well, um, business idea for someone uh, out there. There you go. This uh, you guys could uh, do that. Uh, the double A and S and others. All right, let's get to our guest. So we have uh, Dr. K. Redfield Jameson. She's a professor of psychiatry at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and is a, a prolific author. Yes. And, uh, just a wonder. <laughs> so it's very good. Uh, she's written um, um, several very famous books, uh, the first of which was An Unquiet Mind, which um, uh, was published back in the 90s. It was about her uh experience uh with with uh, bipolar disorder yeah i actually had it as a signed reading in college um in what was then called my abnormal psychology class i don't know if it has a a different name nowadays but i remember uh that that book really along with the rest of the reading list it really made an impact on me in terms of like thinking about mental illness and destigmatizing it and thinking about it as a biological thing that's happening and how it must affect everyone's lives and and what it's like to have to experience that. It was very interesting. Very influential book as well. And uh, she's been at Johns Hopkins um, for, um, for decades and is a staple in, in the psychiatry department there. And Mm so uh, it was a wonderful to talk with her. She is uh, just one of the leading academics on mental health and mental illness. Dr. Jameson also has a new book out called Fires in the Dark, Healing the Unquiet Mind. So we'll be talking a little bit about her new book as well. A fascinating, fascinating uh, book about the basically the cultural history of the treatment and healing of mental suffering. And um, so let's get to our conversation with Dr. Jameson. All right. Well, we, it's just such a pleasure to welcome you, Dr. Jameson, to, uh, to the podcast here today. Thank you for joining us. Sure. Delighted. Uh, so I, I'd like to start off uh, by talking about your very influential work, uh, An Unquiet Mind, which you wrote back in 1995, I believe. Right. What were you doing from a professional standpoint at that time in your life? Because right now you're at Johns I, Hopkins. Where were you at that point? Right. I was a, a professor of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins. Yeah. Okay. What year was it when you started working at Johns Hopkins? Uh, 1987. Oh, okay. And The last and... ice age. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and so um, you were you were working as a psychotherapist at Johns Hopkins? And uh, at, at that time, yeah, I was a, a researcher and teacher, and uh, yeah, there, uh, uh, yeah. And what was it that prompted you to to write such a personal 
personal account of of your own mental illness. Especially at that time. It's gotten yeah. a little more common now, but at that time, I'm sure that was not very common. Uh, no, it really wasn't very common. And you've got me why I did it. I mean, uh, I did I did it a lot because people weren't doing it, I suppose. And, you know, bipolar illness is a, a bad illness to have. And I think like all mental illnesses, it makes you feel very alone mm -hmm. uh, and uninformed. And like there's nobody else that has this particular problem. So I wanted to write a book about, you know, how difficult it was to live with it, but also that you could get through it. Were you were you nervous about publishing that, given the the climate Insanely around mental nervous. health? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yes, and for professional reasons, I was absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's one of the few times in my life. I'm not anxious. I I'm inclined to moods, obviously, but not anxiety. And I was really anxious. Uh, my yeah. I was about. Uh, you know, mainly privacy, you know, you don't mm -hmm. go around talking about these things. You certainly did then, but also professional reasons. I, I didn't, I have licenses and I had hospital privileges and, um, you know, I didn't know if I would still have a job and, you know, what would happen. Well, that was incredibly brave then. I mean, to potentially be sacrificing all that in order to publish that book. That was, that's amazing. What, what was the reaction to, from your medical colleagues, from the people you interacted with on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, I would say overwhelmingly positive with a lot of um, horror lobbed in. My, when I went to the chairman of my department at Hopkins, he was, and I started saying, oh, you know, I, I don't want to put Hopkins in a difficult position. There are legal issues, there are ethical issues, there are teaching issues, clinical issues. Um, but I, I did feel like it was important for people to know that professionals suffer a lot from mental illness and uh, that it was good to be open about it. And he said, you know, Kay, you have it all wrong. You have it absolutely backwards. Uh, when Professor Halstead, who was the first chief of surgery at Johns Hopkins, uh, when people in the faculty knew he had a cocaine addiction and a morphine addiction. And Osler, uh, who was chair of medicine at the time, um, said, you know, basically, I have your back, uh, you know, and, and the faculty took it upon themselves to make sure that Halstead could continue to practice when he was well and to mm -hmm. teach young surgeons. And he said, if, if Hopkins can't do that for you, Hopkins has no business being in business. So he, he gave me the support you know, of a great That's teaching amazing. hospital. He, he sent me off to have lunch with the, with the president of Hopkins Hospital, who said exactly the same thing. Uh, if anybody gives you any trouble, I want to hear about yeah. it. Um, so now this is not, trust me, this is not typical of medical schools around the country. It's, 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 right. it's atypical, but exemplary. Yeah, that's a really incredible example and, and ahead of their time. You know, Dr. Halstead, you mentioned Dr. Halstead, uh, who is, I believe, right. credited for the um the outrageous working hours that were kind of thrust upon you know residents and and medical trainees for years uh and yes. and, uh, and so it's um certainly i feel like we've come a long way you know in terms of understanding those pressures and that it's not good for mental health physical health either certainly true on the other hand he also introduced rubber gloves and uh <laughs> 
So he wasn't all bad. That's what we're yeah. going to well, say. Well, on, on the contrary, but I think he, you know, he, and that was his standard procedure being brutal to, right. to house death. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I love that this ties into just, you know, the, the complicated messiness that it is to be a human being, right? We like to have these narratives of there's good people and there's bad people and there's good things that happen and bad things that happen. But in reality, people are just people and we all are multifaceted and have, you know, good things about us and quote bad things about us. And, and, you know, it's about finding that balance between the two. It's not about, you know, deifying one and vilifying another. Absolutely. And it's, it's a legacy in medicine. If you got rid of all the people who had been outrageous, uh, you <laughs> yeah. would lose an awful lot of people, you know, who, That's you know, funny. I mean, Halstead trained Harvey Cushing. Cushing was no yeah. gentle pussycat, but he also <laughs> went into the brain at a time when nobody would. And, you know, so there, there are, and, and in the arts, I mean, still not just medicine, it's in the arts and rest of the sciences. Yes, I, yeah. I just I just returned from a neurosurgery uh, conference where I I spoke uh, there, and uh, uh, Cushing's face is all over the place, and so yes, yes, certainly yes. Um, these people had just a huge influence on on medicine. But that you mentioned the uh, the anxiety you had, the fear you had in coming yeah. out with your story and your illness. Uh, but you know, much to your surprise, it sounds like you, the response was um, understanding that you got from from uh, you know the people in your life. Were any well, of your fears? Say, yeah, I was gonna ask if any of your fears yeah. were were actually you know came to light. Did you? Oh, for, did for you, sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think I had the support of my department. I had the support of my colleagues. I think mostly. Uh, there was a certain amount of very uncomfortable silence, it has to be said, you know, that people, once you've written that you've been psychotic and manic and done inordinately embarrassing things and you've tried to kill yourself, this creates a certain um, discomfort in in some sure. people, to say the least, uh, and for, you know, probably for good cause. But um, I think it, by and large, in, in my medical colleagues were terrific, so definitely exceptions is i think the general public for the most part too is wonderful but there are a lot of people you know when people talk about stigma um you know i got hundreds of letters basically saying that uh i should i would die in hell i would live in hell for the rest of my life uh you know mm -hmm. that uh, i had sinned if i'd prayed enough often enough well enough i wouldn't have had bipolar illness you know at there was a lot of vitriol out there, wow. and there's a lot of fear and um, ignorance. Um, mm -hmm. And I go yeah. on the receiving end of it, a lot of it. Were you were you seeing patients at this time? Were were you did you have an active you know practice? practice? I I did. I had um, a considerable practice in Washington, which is where I was living mm -hmm. and commuting to to Hopkins. Um, and I loved it and I loved seeing patients, but I talked with a couple of my colleagues and asked them their advice about whether they thought it was a good idea to continue seeing patients. And basically they said no. Uh, and I think that that was good advice, uh, for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. You, you, you know, what, what 
what came to my mind talking about all the letters that were sent to you, um, just really nasty things uh, being told to you was in my world in this day and age, it's, it's social media, right? So mm-hmm. if, if, if you went public, if you go public with an, an illness, I'll just use myself as an example. You know, I had a, a cardiac arrest and a couple of cancer diagnoses, which is, which is very different than obviously a mental illness. But I, I do think that, the way times have changed now is that it would be a much more, a much more immediate public reaction to uh, coming out with a, a mental illness. And I have to think probably a little bit more positive than, than maybe than mm-hmm. it would have been, um, you know, in the, in the eighties or nineties. Do you feel like we've come a long way in terms of just accepting mental illness and just the immediate reaction that people have to it or do we or no or no yeah yeah do we have a long way to go yeah i would say okay i would answer both of you yes and no um yeah uh sure i think people know a lot more than they used to you know the very fact that prozac arrived you know in a manger and everybody thought this was solve yeah. all psychiatric problems was really a good thing. I mean, completely oversold it. It was, you know, drug company hype, whatever. But it yeah. was a drug that worked and people started talking about depression. And that was a really good thing. And so all the times that people used to, you know, haul you over in the corner and say, I have a friend who's depressed, all of a sudden we're talking about their own depressions much more openly. And I think that's been a good thing. And I think that people do know more. I mean, that the fact that there are a lot of medications out there that work, uh, that people have more comfort talking about psychotherapy probably than they used to. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think what's happened is in a way it's gotten a lot mushed up so that mental health has become mushed up with mental illness. So in some ways, mm-hmm. that's probably a good thing because it, it takes away some of the stigma. In other ways, it takes away from the fact that these really are illnesses and mm-hmm. it trivializes them. So, you know, it's, we run the risk in a way um, of, of trivializing very bad illnesses. So I, th- I, th- I think mm-hmm. it's complicated. I think one, one good thing about the pandemic, uh, not a whole lot of good things you can say about it, but one good thing is that people had their kids around them a lot and saw there's a lot of disturbance out there and it's real and that there, you know, there just aren't enough psychiatrists and psychologists anywhere. Right. Right. You know, absolutely. Yeah. It's really hard, even in a Metro area, like where we are, it's hard to find anyone that has openings even now, even three years in. (laughs) Yeah. And in your, in your most recent, um, your most recent book, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, um, you talk about kind of the, 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 the state of psychotherapy kind of where it is today and this, um, uh, the idea that, you know, there's therapy, but there's all, there's psychotherapy, but there's also medication and, um, that it's, it's like a, it's kind of a balance between the two, right. That, that they complement each other. Uh, do you feel like we're going in the right direction in terms of how we are treating mental illness in terms of finding that balance? Probably not. Um, I think that, you know, for like clinical depression, the evidence Mm -hmm. has been pretty clear for a long time that the combination of psychotherapy and medication is better than either one alone. 
so we that's been around just in the books. I mean, is and and in the scientific literature, the clinical literature. Um, if you look at clinical practice, you know, psychiatrists just end up do, spending a lot of their time prescribing drugs, which is not hugely interesting. Uh, it's not <laughs> why a lot of people went into psychiatry. People went in because they were interested in life stories and and making people suffer less and so forth. So I think that, you know, insurance companies don't cover psychotherapy very much. Uh, it's expensive. Um, mm -hmm. Medications are much more seen within the medical model. Um, mm. So I think, you know, I, I, again, I think it's a mixture. I think people have more fe favorable feelings about medication, which is great uh, because the, the hurdle before was getting people to acknowledge that there was something good for medication. I think we've perhaps swung too far and not acknowledging how important psychotherapy can be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I'm sure the time constraints that people have now, you know, with our healthcare sure. system, make it even more challenging. Right. So much faster right. and easier just to prescribe a pill or just to take a pill than, you know, spend the time to... Faster, cheaper. Yeah. And, yeah. and also, you know, and one of the things that, again, that came out of the pandemic is that um, at Hopkins, we, we were studying tele, telepsychiatry, and I thought, well, yeah, sure, patients are, may well cotton on to this and like it better because mm -hmm. they don't have to drive into East Baltimore, or the, you know, right. park car especially if you're depressed. I mean, yeah. yeah, 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 exactly, or anxious, or anything, yeah, uh, you know, or, or normal, or normal. Uh, but the 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 problem. I thought would be with the with the doctors, but it wasn't the doctors. The doctors actually liked telepsychiatry a lot, and oh, that really? says oh. you know, and that's really and that's really quite wonderful. Once they got over, I mean, Hopkins has a very like three or four hour very systematic evaluation in person, and that I think everybody regarded as you couldn't couldn't exchange that. But once beyond that, that you could do a lot of psychiatry psychiatric practice, uh, and people found it more satisfying than they than they reckoned. I'm I'm so glad that there are specialties that really embraced uh, telemedicine because it was miserable as an ophthalmologist. I'll tell you, it's uh, maybe one of the worst things I've ever had to endure is trying to diagnose eye problems over a at times pretty terrible internet connection. So yes, well, I mean, as I mentioned, my husband's a cardiologist, and I mean the idea of doing tele medicine right. is like you know and i'll do your heart next i mean you know but. certainly it certainly works for for some specialties yeah. better than others yeah but i, I wanted right. to talk a little bit more about um about your personal experience uh with with bipolar with manic depression um because i feel like there's a lot of knowledge as a, a lot of you go on social media you see a lot of people talking about mental illness and a lot of it's surrounding uh, you know, depression and, and burnout and, and anxiety. Um, tell us about, about mania. Cause I, I think that that is, is something that's not really well known in terms of the symptoms and, and what that looks like. Uh, and so can you just give us a little bit of your experience? Sure. I mean, I, I, mania is actually like depression has been described long, long before Hippocrates. So it's been around forever in really good clinical description. Um, so it was particularly kind of fiery madness. And if you think of depression as being a uh, completely sluggish state, uh, no energy, um, 
low mood, uh, self-loathing, incapable of thinking, uh, not just rationally, but thinking at all, just confused, ruminating, and so forth, like a Mm -hmm. hamster in a wheel, uh, suicidal. Mania is is almost the opposite in the sense that people's mood usually is elevated, expansive, high, uh, euphoric. Uh, People feel at one with the universe. They feel like, you know, uh, commune with God or our God, uh, depending on the stage of mania. Um, and it's a highly irritable, highly volatile state, high energy, high voltage. So people have just limitless energy. They stay up all night. They don't sleep. They sleep, go without sleeping night after night after night. They are impulsive, um, occasionally violent. An assaultive. They talk nonstop. They talk very rapidly. Um, mm. They are uh, irrational about purchasing things. You know, I mean, mania is the only illness in in medicine where there's a uh, one of the diagnostic criteria is, is spending too much money. Um, mm. So that's actually one feature of mania. And in fact, if you get a group of people who have been manic in a group. Very often, the the old war stories will center around what outrageous things did you buy, you know, and right. how did you yeah. pay them off, and you know, uh, whatever. So it's it, but it's a hyper, hyper, hyper state. Um, it's it's very often confused, um, not uncommonly, and, and understandably sometimes by the police as being a drug induced state. You know, that you're oh, yeah. on amphetamine or cocaine or so forth. Is it a um? You know, I know you talk about, you have another book about exuberance, which exuberance feels very positive to experience. Yes, is right. mania similar in that way or different? Um, it's similar similar in its mild forms. The okay. trouble with mania, I mean, if you could keep mania at it, in its mild forms, you know, everyone would sign up for it in a heartbeat. Right. right? I mean, it's, it's like, you know, who wouldn't want more It's like a sex, constant good you know, mood. More? I mean, you know, I mean, you'd have to yeah. be pretty disturbed indeed not to, to want that. And that's that's kind of a hyper form of exuberance. But the trouble with mania is that it, it becomes uh, really pathological and psychotic. Yeah. So people, most people who have, you know, stage three mania, for example, hallucinate, have delusions, are incredibly reckless. Um, Do we know anything about, so I'm not in medicine or attached to the medical field in any way, except that I'm married to an ophthalmologist. That's it. So maybe you guys already know this, but do we know anything about the neurochemical, you know, underlying mechanisms of depression and mania? And are they the same mechanisms or are these two different systems or what do we know about how that's working on a, on a biological level? Um, well, we know first and foremost with bipolar illness, it's genetic. Okay. So it's it's one of the most, next to autism, one of the most genetic illnesses in psychiatry. It's really highly heritable. Um, so if you raise, you know, identical twins, and one twin is raised with non-biological parents in L.A. Mm-hmm. and another in Copenhagen, uh, which is kind of the gold standard of genetic studies, you find that uh, there's like 80 to 90%. If one, if, if one twin has bipolar illness, the other twin likely so. Uh-huh. Uh, what's what's con- a bit confusing is that in the old European literature, people thought of manic depressive illness as also including 
recurrent depression. So what we know is so people who didn't, who never showed mania, in mm -hmm. fact, who have very recurrent depressions, look much more genetically in terms of also the course of their illness treatment response wise, they look much more like bipolar illness than they do major depression. So it oh, gets very complicated very complicated in there. And that's one of the major, yeah. you know, diagnostic problems that comes up. But we do, the, to answer your question, yes, we know a lot. We know a lot from neuroimaging. We know a lot from neurobiology. Very complicated, but a lot of really sophisticated and elegant science. I mean, it's yeah. just in the last 10, 15 years, it's, it's been remarkable. Yeah, because a lot of the symptoms seem kind of opposite, you know, between the two. So I'm just right. curious if maybe some of the the mechanisms are, you know, just the Polar same opposite. mechanism, but other, you know, yes. each opposite ends of that mechanism for the two. Yeah, I think very definitely so. Um, okay. You know, it, it's the, the jury's out, but I think so. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have to, obviously, you're very open with your own illness. And so I wanted to ask you about, we talked about the, the, the symptoms, the things that can happen to someone who's in a manic episode. And uh, I have to ask you about the snake bite kits. So um, you, you, you've talked about that before. I thought that was a very fascinating, interesting manifestation of your illness. Uh, yeah, I think, and again, I think if you talk to anybody who's been manic, uh, you know, it's, it's just, a, it's different stories, same. Same, yeah. Uh, sure. yeah right. right. So uh, when I got, I, I had gotten sort of mildly manic in high school and then severely suicidally depressed my senior year. And then I went bouncing around and never got psychotically manic until I joined the faculty as assistant professor at UCLA in the psychiatry department. And Natch. Um, and one of the things that happens to you when you're manic is you get very certain about mm. things that may or may not be true. I mean, uh, and the word delusion comes to mind, but you also just get kind of paranoid and kind of convinced that you can do certain things or that you should protect people. So one of the first things that happened to me when I got really manic was in LA, there are actually a lot of snakes. I mean, in fairness to my psychosis, sure. I, there are actually a lot of snakes. Sure. Um, and so I had this sense that there was a major rattlesnake problem in the San Fernando Valley, pretty specific, but a lot of snakes. And so I went out and I went to a pharmacy at the same time that I was filling my prescription for lithium, my first prescription for lithium. I gave my prescription over to the pharmacist. And then I went around filling up my cart. Um, and in my cart, I had like a dozen snake bite kits uh, because I wanted all of my friends to be protected. And so uh, when I went to pick up my prescription, the pharmacist looked, you know, yeah. as he just felt. Put two and two together. Lightning mind. That's right. And you know, and it's interesting, I gave one of the snake bite kits to my psychiatrist. And I was joking, oh maybe a year or so ago, there was an article about actually there was a snake infestation in the San Fernando Valley. And so I emailed him and I said, I rest my case, you know. <laughs> you were just ahead later. of your time. And he's, and, he's, that's, that's right. and he said, you know, I still have that snake bite kit. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. Oh. And so is it, uh, you know, if you've had, if you get multiple 
you know, over time, multiple episodes, manic episodes, do they tend to manifest the same way for a person? Like, would it, would it be the same for you if like maybe six months you had another episode? Um, or uh, do you find that there are differences in those manic episodes? Well, if, if you look at the <clears throat> old literature, one of the problems is that everything is compounded in this day and age by medication. So if people, if you have a mood disorder mm. and say you were depressed and then you took antidepressants, that can precipitate mania and can make you really, really agitated and give you a form of mania that you might not otherwise have had. So you might have had euphoric manias, which is about 50% of people get manic, or um, very paranoid and irritable manics, manias, which is about the other 50%. So, in, so it, for the most part, the old literature where it was not complicated by medications People were pretty consistent manic episode to manic episode in terms of the manifestations of the symptoms, how they came on, the first symptoms and so forth, and the course. Um, so there is there is a certain. I mean, if I got if I stopped my lithium and I got manic, I I I can pretty much guess how that would play. Yeah. Right. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, let's take a let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Dr. Jameson. Hey, Kristen, do you know why a stethoscope is so hard to use? Um, Because there's no heartbeat in an eyeball. That's actually a really good point. Uh-huh. But also, the heart is quiet. The, the, mm. the sounds are somewhat distant. And sometimes you're in a noisy environment and you're trying to listen mm. to all the, the beeps and boops and whatever other noises there are in the heart. Uh, but with Echo Health's 3M Litman Core Digital Stethoscope, it's easier than ever. You get 40 times sound amplification, mm. active background noise cancellation. Honestly, even an ophthalmologist could figure it out. I also really could have used one of those before I had to do 10 minutes of CPR on you. Yeah. It leads to earlier detection, better outcomes, something that's definitely meaningful for us. And we have a special offer for our U.S. listeners. Visit echohealth.com slash KKH and use code NOC50 to experience Echo's digital stethoscope technology. That's E-K-O health slash KKH and use NOC50 to get $50 off plus a free case plus free engraving with this exclusive offer. A big thank you to all our listeners. Spread the love. Share this podcast with everyone you know. Every single person. Everybody. As, like Every person you know. Leave a rating and review. Be honest. You can tell us what you think. We want to improve this thing as we go. Uh, later today, we're going to share some of your own medical stories. You can share yours at knockknockhigh at human-content.com. We also have a Patreon. Come hang out with other members of this community. Uh, early episode access check out bonus episodes where we react to medical shows and movies and it's just a lot of fun so come hang out with us all right we are back with dr k jameson uh and um what i want to talk about right now is something that has been on the minds of people in medical education and medical training uh really certainly during the pandemic, but even before that, for the last five, 10 years, I feel like it's it's an issue that's been gaining a lot of attention. And that's just uh, burnout, mental health, especially for young doctors, pre-meds, med students, trainees, 
uh, and and you are have been in an, uh, at Johns Hopkins, you know, for for um, you know quite a while, and have seen a lot of med students, a lot of trainees over the years. Uh, and so I'd like to get your your perspective on the mental health of young doctors. You know, how have you how have you seen it change over the years? Is it getting is it getting easier to become a doctor? Is it becoming from like a mental health standpoint? Uh, or are some of the challenges they're facing, challenges that uh, new doctors face, really the same ones we've been having for like 30 years? So I guess when you first started in your current capacity uh, at Johns Hopkins, were you interacting with a lot of med students and residents? Sure, yeah. And, and, and I would say it's kind of sorts itself in two ways. One is mental illness, mm-hmm. um, which is very real in house staff and medical students, junior faculty. Um, and the other is, quote, burnout. So right. let me address that separately. In terms of mental illness, it's always been the case that there's been, since people started studying it, that there's a higher rate of bipolar illness in doctors. Hmm. Uh, there's a much higher rate of suicide in doctors, particularly in women doctors. Um, and there's a much higher rate of depression. And so one of the things we tell the medical students at Hopkins is, look, a lot of you are going to get depressed. That's just that's just the way it is. I mean, it's a common illness. Most common manifestation is your age group. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's just that that is, you know, it's going to happen to a lot of you. So the question is, what do you do about it? And we will do everything possible to get you well. And we have every reason to believe that we will be able to get you well. But we cannot tolerate impaired doctors. Um, So, you know, you have to make the incentive to reach out for care instead of to curl up in a ball and and avoid care. And and also that you keep a wing out for your fellow classmates. You, You know what the symptoms are of depression. Um, and so forth. So that that's just sort of a, a thing. But but people do, and people actually in the third year of medical school are more likely to get manic because they start their clinical rotations, and mm-hmm. there's sleep deprivation. Mm-hmm. Uh, sleep deprivation is the single easiest way. If you've got the genes that are going to gear you toward bipolar illness, the single easiest way to precipitate mania is sleep deprivation. So people start going on their clinical rotations stay up all night and so forth. So you make reasonable accommodations and you say, look, uh, if you're a resident, you're, you're going to have to do the same workload as your fellow residents, but we're going to work it around so that you aren't, you know, being pressured by, by sleep uh, problems and so forth. So I think that there's more recognition and more of an effort to reach out to medical students and health staff. It's still pretty quiet, but you know, I mean, I get a lot of, because I've, because I have been open, people come and say, yeah, how do you negotiate the, the licensing system, the mm-hmm. privileges system? You know, how do you get around this and that? But mainly, how do you deal with, with being terrified it's going to happen again? You know, you're right. talking about your heart problems. You know, there's mm-hmm. a certain terror probably lurking mm-hmm. that this is going to happen again. That's true for mania. It's true for breast cancer. It's true for so many things. Um, so, so I think just recognizing that mood disorders in particular, anxiety mm-hmm. disorders, perhaps less so, but um, substance abuse, that these are common things in doctors. And, you know, you, you could maybe you could wish it would be otherwise, but it isn't. And, you know, you, 
you're not going to have any medical students left if you start saying, yeah. you know, you can't have this and you can't have that, right. you know, right. or you have pretty boring students. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think, I think burnout's much more complicated. I mean, the mental illness has been around forever and right. will be, and it's important to say this is an illness. It's not, you know, just putting stress in the background makes everything a little bit more squishy. Um, with, with burnout, I think that, you know, I mean, you could say that, well, maybe it's the admissions policy, you know, um, maybe we, we are attracting medical students that are more stress oriented that are, because we, they have these staggeringly high qualifications to get into medical Mm -hmm. school. And we and weird qualifications. I find it weird. I was on the admissions committee. I mean, I find it strange that you know, there's. I mean, these people are, are. I don't know where they come from. They're they're brilliant. They're they're accomplished. They've all studied with three major cellists and written films. And you know, in mm-hmm. addition to taking molecular biology majors. I mean, you know, it's 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 these are not normal. These are not the doctors of of yore, right? Right. Okay, so these are these are, and I think there's something to be said obviously for that group of people, but also for the doctors of your, who may have been a little bit more phlegmatic and a little bit more taking things as, as they come. Um, I think another thing is, is the system's just insane in terms of epic and uh, medical records and, and putting those expectations and taking away some of the delights of practicing medicine that used to be there. Um, And I think that that's something that's, that's a real problem. And, And whether you call it burnout or depression is also another issue because I've, yeah. You know, a lot of what gets called burnout is a discontent and is to a certain extent encouraged by the system because everybody talks about burnout all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. right. And, and everybody, they do perhaps less to ameliorate burnout than they do to just put it out there that people are, there's almost a weakness quality to it that, you know, that, that you've burned out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, so I think that that's, uh, you know, I think we should take it instead of just talking about burnout, that we should also talk about depression and but we should also talk about a system that encourages endless discussion of burnout uh, as opposed to, you know, I mean, I sometimes talk to young doctors and I think, you know, yeah, I can understand this is stressful, but, you know, try being a secretary who doesn't have any money, doesn't have a job she likes, um, you know, and so forth. That That's that's. That's real stress. Um, you know, it's the people at community colleges, if you talk to students in community colleges, mm-hmm. as opposed to the Ivy League, Ivy League has a very special kind of stress. But boy, these kids that are working 50 hours a week uh, and are the first kids in their family to go to college, that's, you know, that's that's a different kind of stress. Right. It affects your life in a whole different way. How do you think the right. pandemic factors in? Do you think, you know... In that case, now there's there's a bunch of, you know, vicarious trauma and uh, maybe some moral injury happening um, among doctors, right? As you're treating these people and, and there's only so much you can do or you're being prevented from being what you know they need, from doing what you know they need. Has that exacerbated burnout in, in a real way? Or uncovered more mental illness. Yeah. Oh, I would say, I mean, I, I, I think with nurses particularly, Mm-hmm. Who were there, you know, hour in, hour out, hour in, hour out. Um, that that you can just see it in the in the resignation rates. You know, I mean, it's it's just really 
deeply upsetting to see that. And the question is how do I think how do all of us reach out to fellow professionals and you know say we can try and understand what you've been through, what can we do to make a difference? Um, mm-hmm. I think that's true for doctors, but but less so. I think doctors had more independence in it. Um, and is so they, I, I know that one of the things that um, the, our chief of nursing was giving a talk, a great talk, not too long ago, and she said, "You know what? I will never ever do again in the rest of my life is keep a dying patient away from a family member, you yes. know, because of COVID protocols. You know, you can help you learn from things. That's that's all mm-hmm. I think is that you can say you can learn, but you also can expect that people will." recover because i think if you play to people's weaknesses and fears and anxieties all the time um you perhaps encourage some of it if you say it's been really difficult it's been really hard uh but you'll get through it we'll all get through it and yeah people are actually getting through it um mm-hmm. well yeah, maybe a little more a little more um you know concentration on how to deal with those things when they happen, right? So first awareness, and I think that's what's gotten, you know, better, depending how you look at it, it's gotten more prevalent. (laughs) Um, It's just awareness of these issues and talking about the issues. Um, But it's like you're mentioning, it's no good to just sit and wallow in those feelings. We need to be preparing people and equipping people to do something about it, to, you know, get out of that place. Yeah. Giving people positive things to do as opposed again playing to people's strengths as opposed to yeah. playing always to this is this is the end of the world it's not the end of the world it's a bad epidemic and it has been cost a million lives and there's been incompetence and you know mistakes and, and terrible things and it's driven this country apart in a horrible horrible unforgivable sort of way the emphasis has to be on how do you heal that? Um, and how, how do you mm-hmm. get around that horribleness? And that's, that's something that you, um, as far as how to heal uh, uh, from a mental health, mental illness standpoint, something you touch on a lot in your new book. So I'd like to talk about that. Uh, your book called Fires in the Dark, Healing the Unquiet Mind. Uh, I think it's coming out in May, uh, just a, a short time from now. Well, and, so by the time this airs, it will be uh, out. Yes, so yes. we encourage everybody to go check Absolutely. that out. Uh, and so can you give us a little bit of uh, background of this book and, and why you wrote it and, and what people can look for? Um, I wrote it as kind of a love song to psychotherapy, but in a very general sense. I was interested in what, what can we do? What do we do? What do doctors do? What do priests do? What do we do uh, about psychological suffering? And I was interested in tracing it way back in time to thousands and thousands of years, indeed, back to the Neanderthals, to seeing what people did uh, when they were in mental pain. Interesting. And through the uh, war fields and the doctors who had to deal with trauma and had to improvise on the spot for hundreds of thousands of of soldiers with uh, shell shock in the First World War, uh, to to modern psychotherapy and to the combinations of therapy and medication, but also the use of the arts. I was I was very interested and in always beholden to people. Everything from 
King Arthur to Paul Robeson. And I wrote about uh, lives of courage and, and beauty and how we have to build our own islands in order to survive. And it's up to us to build the islands, but it's the help of doctors and, and friends and family that uh, make it possible. Well, it's super just interesting. A, yeah, fascinating uh, subject for a book. I I love you know medical history and seeing how things have changed over time. And it's, yeah, like, and I think just... maybe sometimes along the way we lose some wisdom that you know maybe if we revisit we can we can gain some of that back again in a new modern way. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, Dr. Jameson, thank you so much for joining us. It's really been a pleasure to talk with you. And again. Um, that book is Fires in the Dark, Healing the Unquiet Mind. And I think you're also, you can find information about you on uh, your Facebook page, uh, K Redfield Jameson. Uh, and um, just, uh, again, thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Well, it's, it was delightful to talk to you. Got a great program. Thanks. Thanks so much. <laughs> oh, thank, thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Take care. Okay, let's take a look at some of our favorite medical stories that were sent in by the listeners. It's fan story time. Uh, here we go. So we have Patricia. Patricia says, recently I've had a prime lesson on, quote, never assume patients know how to take their medicine, even if they've been prescribed it um, multiple times. That's, that's, a good, that's a good little lesson there. So a patient came in, handed me their prescription, and it was for some suppositories. It's pretty common even adults are prescribed those, especially when dealing with upper GI tract problems. I had, I had them in stock, got the package, and was about to hand them to the patient when they asked for ones from a different manufacturer. I told them I would have to order a different generic, but asked what the problem with this specific brand was because I wasn't sure if it would make a whole lot of difference. The patient then asked me to look for ones that didn't contain paraffin. I was growing confused at this point paraffin like the, wax. the wax right yeah because and i quote i've been prescribed these before and they taste so waxy oh dear oh dear i absolutely did not recover in time to stop myself from asking them <laughs> uh but how would you be able to taste them when you apply them through your you know after which I was treated to the most stunning color show on their face going from white <laughs> oh, no. to red I guess that's Aww. when the realization kicked in. Well, they asked me to hand their prescription back before they could say anything. I bolted, uh, they bolted out of the pharmacy. <laughs> See, so maybe okay. this could now, be a PSA this... for all doctors and pharmacists the world over. Please don't assume patients know where their suppositories go. And in this patient's defense, yep. it sounds to me as though no one explained it to her well. Is it a her? Him? Do we know? We don't know. They're, them. them. No them. one explained it to them well enough, clearly. Well, I think the less, uh, all, and certainly, you know, don't hesitate to explain things multiple times. Yeah, um, check for understanding. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a good lesson to learn, but also quite a story. <laughs> that poor, that poor patient. I mean, it can't hurt you to swallow it, right? It, it's it, going in the same place eventually. I have honestly no idea what what the outcome of that. That's probably something I should have been taught at some point in. Med school. Yeah. What I happens? Mean, it's just the other okay end of to, the same tube. To, so to consume 
orally uh, a suppository it is the same it's a tube right yeah yeah i mean stomach acid's gonna do some things to it but also so be. would the intestines well uh, not quite as not, not quite as to the extent harshly, i guess of the, but... of the stomach acid but you know <laughs> i like where you're thinking you know your yeah. head's in the right place um at the top of the tube and <laughs> so we got fan story number two uh from misty misty says in my intern year of pediatrics i was doing my nursery rotation one night a fellow intern and i got a call from the nursery because a newborn had a fever this requires an evaluation for infection, including procedures, and we had to get permission from the family first. Then the nurse told us that the mother only spoke Spanish. This was well before translators were readily available in our hospital. My fellow intern had some Spanish knowledge and volunteered to communicate the situation. Unfortunately, she knew conversational Spanish and not medical Spanish. She told the mother that the baby was fumar. Oh, no. <laughs> Now, you, you do know Spanish. Kristen here is a Spanish major in college. so she's, I remember some of it. Conversational Spanish. Yeah. While she thought this would translate into hot or febrile, she actually told the mother that the baby was smoking. <laughs> Barbecue right? baby. Yes. Fumar <laughs> smoking. Yeah. <laughs> Your baby is smoking, baby ma'am. Is smoking. I'm sorry to tell you. The, the mother. What's the correct word? Well, see, I don't know medical. This is the whole Fe point. Fever? I don't know what it would be okay. when it comes to yeah, Hot, fever. Ca caliente? Um, again, <laughs> that's going to be a different <laughs> meaning the, okay. than you want. Gotcha. I'll think <laughs> Babies I'll... are definitely, they, that okay. word does not apply to them. I'll go ahead and stop there. <laughs> um, okay. The mother was truly surprised I to hear. I would guess calor. Like, calor. Yeah. Calor. That means heat. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, but I don't know. It's a guess. Uh, so, uh, you guys let us know. I'm yeah, sure we have a lot of people who actually know like <laughs> medical Spanish. Uh, the mother was truly surprised to hear that her baby had picked up smoking on her second day of life. <laughs> Fortunately, we found nursing staff who spoke Spanish and they were able to correct the misunderstanding. We joked about it for years afterward. Uh, that's oh, it's a, hilarious. That's a good one. That's Fum a really good one. Fumar. All See, right. it's funny. I don't know why, but my mind didn't go to smoking like a cigarette. It went to your baby's on fire. <laughs> smoking. <laughs> oh, that's good. Send us your stories. Knock, knock, high at human-content.com. That, uh, that was a fun episode. Yeah, really nice fascinating. To, uh, man, talk about experience. Yeah. Like... It's, professional personal yes, everything yes. uh dr k jameson just uh, the the wealth of knowledge she has on this topic and having also just been in this field for so long and seeing the changes over time uh and the the reaction to to mental illness and mental health um and how it's that's changed uh, she brought is, up a good point too of you know yes it's good that mental health is in the conversation more um, today, but you don't want to forget that mental illness is its own thing within that. It needs different things than just, you know, keeping yourself healthy, just the same way that, a, you know, physical health differs from disease mm -hmm. per se. So I thought that was a nice distinction to keep in mind as we continue these discussions. And That's true. Because I, I never, I mean, I, I talk about burnout a lot and, mm -hmm. and I do a little bit on mental health in my videos, but uh, I, I've never really thought about it that way. Like, right? No, we need Sometimes to, like, specifically... there is an illness happening yeah, that it, needs it, a different kind of treatment. Right, and 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 we need to 
talk about that in particular. Right. So uh, lots of uh, lots of good uh, things to to think about, and just a very also a very timely topic. Yeah. You know? So thank you, Dr. Jameson, for joining us, uh, and uh, thank you all for listening. Do you have any any thoughts about the episode? We'd love to hear what you guys think uh, about anything from you know mental illness, uh, our conversations on that. Or about uh, uh, smoking babies. Uh, if you have any thoughts about smoking babies, we'd love babies to hear. Babies on the barbecue. There's lots of ways to hit us up. Email us, knockknockhi at human-content.com. Uh, visit us on our social media platforms. We're on pretty much all of them. We're going to try to provide some value across am, the board. I am frequently impersonated on social media, and so it was suggested by you. Yes. <laughs> to that we have a presence everywhere uh, so that I don't get my identity stolen. No one stolen. cares. Okay, all right, <laughs> let's, let's move on, let's move on. Uh, also, hang out with us and our Human Content Podcast family on Instagram and TikTok at Human Content Pods. I forget that we're actually like, yeah, people, people are, are listening, listening to everything we're saying. Thank you to all the great listeners leaving awesome feedback and reviews. If you subscribe and comment on your favorite podcasting app or on YouTube, we can give you a shout out like right now. Uh, at Jennifer Ellsworth 1226 on YouTube said, Dr. Glock and Flecken, Jonathan always has the perfect words. Look to Jonathan. I agree. <laughs> Head nod to you. All right. Keep sending us all those, all, all your uh, reviews and jokes and guest ideas. We love, we love hearing that stuff. Uh, and stories, lots of stories. Uh, we also, these episodes are up on YouTube every week on my channel at D Flecken. We also have a Patreon, lots of cool perks, bonus episodes. We're there and interacting with you guys. Early ad-free episode access, interactive Q&A live stream events, much more. I like more. to post pictures where you look silly. Yes, she, uh, she, she, we get, we get it. We give you a lot of, uh, behind the scenes, behind peak. the scenes stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To see like what, uh, this weird life is like. Uh, patreon.com slash glockenflecken or go to glockenflecken.com speaking of patreon community perks new member shout out to juliet b thank you juliet welcome and shout out to of course to all the jonathans head nod to you all patrick brianna l edward k caitlin c k l lucia c mary h mr granddaddy omar stephen g jonathan a chaver w jonathan f leah marion w mark rossbox and sharon s patreon roulette time Drum roll, please. Shout out to Chaver W for being a patron. I like Thank that you. you ask yourself for a drum roll. Oh, <laughs> yeah, hey, hey, don't rain on my parade here. That's my, my favorite part of doing this. I said this. I like it. <laughs> Not really, though. We're your hosts, Will and Kristen Flannery, also known as the Glock and Flecken. Special thanks to our guest today, Dr. K. Jameson. Our executive producers, Will Flannery, Kristen Flannery, Aaron Corney, Rob Goldman, and Shanti Brooke. Our editor and engineer is Jason Portizo. Our music is by Omer Benzvi. To learn about our Night Night Highs program, disclaimer, and ethics policy, submission, verification, and licensing terms, and HIPAA release terms, you can go to theclockandflagon.com and reach out to us at knockknockhigh at human-content.com with any questions, concerns, or jokes. Knock Knock High is a human content production.